This is Talkback, 721-1290 or 1-800-568-5309. This is News Talk KGVO, AM 1290 and 98.3 FM. KGVO, Missoula's news and weather station. Welcome, welcome, ladies and gentlemen. A brand new year of Talkback is underway. Brought to you this morning by Brooklyn Bagel and Bakery. Authentic New York bagels and pastries. Great way to start your new year. Can be found at uh, on North Reserve at Brooklyn Bagel and Bakery. Also brought to you by Phillips Janitorial. A brand new year means more cleaning to do for residential and commercial. Remember, no job is too big or small. So call for a free estimate at 260-6617. The views and opinions expressed on TalkBack are not those of the staff, management, or advertisers. Okay, again, a brand new year. Glad to have you along this morning. Happy New Year to Nick Christensen. Good morning, sir. Good morning, Peter. You're Good to be back. You're wearing your giant sweatshirt? Yes, they made the playoffs while uh, we were away. So I, I, I normally wear it every Monday, Victory Monday, but it's Tuesday because <laughs> we weren't here yesterday. That's so there correct. you go. This is correct. <laughs> All right, and uh, joining us in the studio this morning is Dr. Michael Mayer. Uh, good to see you again, sir. Morning, Peter, Nick, okay. and Happy New Year. And the same to you. And to our good <clears throat> friend, who I've almost forgotten what he looks like, <laughs> that subtle hint to get your get back in the studio, young man, that is uh, Dr. Mirdad Kia. And gentlemen, we're here for Global Hotspots. And again, uh, it's sad to note that even though we have a brand new year, we have a lot of old conflicts that continue to erupt around the world. So, gentlemen, take it away. I'm Good morning, dad. Peter and uh, Nick. Uh, first, let me start by wishing you and Mike and all our listeners a very happy and healthy New Year. Uh, we were reminded last night watching the game between Cincinnati and Buffalo how fragile life can be. Uh, watching Damar Hamlin, 24-year-old Buffalo player, collapse as a result of apparently cardiac arrest. Uh, so um, all our thoughts and prayers to him and all of our uh, compatriots who might be struggling for any health, with any health issues. But you are absolutely right. Uh, we start the new year with uh, a great deal of uh, pain and suffering in the world, of which I think uh, one of the biggest is uh, <clears throat> the situation in Ukraine, where, as uh, some of you have already heard, uh, in the past several hours, there have been uh, intense fighting, and uh, Russia uh, has... Uh, uh, admitted that it lost just in the last uh, 24 hours 63 soldiers, and um, and uh, Ukraine has basically said that uh, the numbers are too low, and about 400 Russians have been killed. So uh, what uh, Mike and I had uh, spoken about that is we are entering uh, not a very cold, in fact, a very hot. War, you know, sort of state of warfare in the world. You know, we had Cold War, but we now have a series of confrontations, and uh, the world is becoming a little bit uh, like a bipolar sort of uh, uh, blocks uh, in which Russia, China, North Korea, and Iran seem to be landing together versus 
the countries of Europe, United States, and its allies, and becoming more and more real. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think um, to add one more to what Meredith said is Japan, who also is very worried about China and um, and a little worried about uh, uh, the, the reliability of America as an ally as well, is beginning rearmament, which uh, really sort of Abe, Shinzo Abe, began the process, but has uh, it's greatly accelerated uh, in recent months. And uh, this is, uh, by the way, this rearmament that Mike has correctly pointed out, uh, seem to be uh, also the trend in Europe. Uh, as our listeners know, uh, NATO will most probably, if Turkey allows it, will get two new uh, members, uh, Sweden and Finland. These are very important countries as far as containing Russia is concerned. And uh, clearly the two countries where the majority of the population uh, intended or wish to uh, remain neutral are now adamant about joining NATO and uh, a new reality has basically dawned in Europe where some of the most left-orienting you know, um, social democratic governments uh, are now actually thinking about strengthening their military and uh, joining the NATO alliance. All right, so so uh, let let's talk about NATO for a moment. I know that uh, when President Trump was in office, one of the things that he very famously insisted on uh, was that if if the rest of the countries of NATO didn't start ponying up and not uh, making the United States bear the financial brunt of what was going on, that that he would withdraw or you know just basically back away from his commitment to NATO. Uh, has has the Biden administration uh, done anything to? Uh, uh, to solidify America's position within NATO? It's a, it's a good question because in, in some ways uh, Biden has been less confrontational. Biden and, and his, his staff have been less confrontational uh, toward NATO. But um, Germany, which um, after Ukraine said, uh-oh, we better do something and we'll, we'll, we'll meet our, our, our commitment to 2% of GDP uh, for defense, uh, has kind of slid back from that now, uh, as, as they might. Other, other countries uh, are more uh, sort of committed to, to actually at least to meeting that 2%. Well, well they have an excuse now. They, they have to spend that money on energy. Yeah. Well, they, they, they do. And one of the, one of the things that, that they did that I think was foolish was become more and more dependent on Russian energy. Um, and that, of course, has created some real problems in Europe and especially Germany. Although I did read a story in my Money Page report this morning. The first shipment of liquefied natural gas from uh, America arrived at a port in Germany and will be shipped over to try to help Germans get through this. Right. But Germans lot- are getting, yeah, Germans are getting uh, basically... Uh, the, the message very loud and clear. They have lowered their uh, dependency, and I think they are moving in the direction of completely reducing their dependency. Also, going back to your question on the NATO, the military chiefs uh, of NATO are meeting on 18th and 19th of this month, and a very important meeting because for the first time again, Sweden and Uh, and Finland will be there. Uh, This is the meeting of 32 chiefs of defense uh, to meet and discuss the issues of strategic importance to the alliance. And, of course, first, second, third, 
will be the security of East European states, especially the Baltic states, Poland and others, vis-a-vis uh, uh, -vis Russia and its threats, um, especially because Russia is backed by Belarus, and uh, Belarus and Russia have made uh, threats that are very serious to the security of uh, the Eastern, East European members uh, of the NATO. And with that, we're up against our first break. Our guests on the phone, uh, Dr. Mirdad Kia, Dr. Michael Mayer, joining us in the studio. This is Global Hotspots, and we're just basically unscrewing the lid <laughs> of, of a world full of conflict going on right now. We would love to have your thoughts and comments. 721-1290, we have several lines open. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. We'll be back right after this. All right, crew, let's get her dug. Honey, you want to give me a hand? I'm planting that tree, remember? No matter how large or small your digging project may be, no matter how urban or rural, you must always call 811 before any digging project. 811 is our national one-call number, alerting your local utility companies to come out and mark any lines they have near your dig site. You must call 811 at least two to three business days before any digging project so you can avoid hitting our essential buried utilities. This includes natural gas and petroleum pipelines, electric, communication cables, and water and sewer lines. So before you do this or this, make sure you do this. For digging projects big or small, make the call to 811. Brought to you by Common Ground Alliance. Victor deployed for the first time to Afghanistan in 2003. He sustained a moderate traumatic brain injury. One of the most important elements of caregiving is taking care of yourself. For many military veteran caregivers, their caregiving journey starts earlier in life and lasts longer. Visit aarp.org caregiving for a free military veteran's guide to navigate your caregiving journey and better care for your loved one and yourself. Brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. And we are back on Talk Back. This is Global Hotspots. I'm Peter Christian, by the way. Nick Questionson over there. We've been gone for the last two years. No. <laughs> Sorry. We've been gone for the last couple of weeks on vacation. Uh, but we are back at it now with Global Hotspots. Again, joining us on the phone is Dr. Mirdad Kia, Dr. Michael Mayer, joining us here in the studio. But we do have uh, one individual already waiting on the phone to uh, weigh in on what's going on around the world. That is our friend Dave. Dave, uh, first of all, thank you for holding your on on Global Hotspots. Go ahead. Yeah, good morning. First of all, I'd like to say about the war, uh, I don't believe... Uh, Putin, he can he cannot afford to lose this war. I mean, it doesn't really matter to him if the war goes on for ten years. He just can't afford to lose it. And and I believe Russia is just gearing up for full mobilization. They they theoretically could put, you know, eight to ten million soldiers on the front line, and and it wouldn't bother him to lose lose a million of them as long as he stays in power. And uh, the only way. The West can beat them as if they, if they match him dollar for dollar in helping Ukraine. All right, gentlemen, your thoughts on that? Thank, thank you, Dave. Thanks for the call. So, uh, what do you think, gentlemen? I think I think Dave is absolutely correct. The numbers um, are such that Russia can stay in uh, the theater uh, and basically attack Ukraine uh, for many weeks and months ahead. 
However, I should say this, that um, learning from previous uh, experiences, uh, especially during Soviet Union, let's say in Afghanistan, after 10 years, um, even in a very oppressive uh, political setting like the Russian society, uh, the parents who were losing their children uh, began to complain and even uh, the leadership of the Communist Party at that point and even some generals in the Soviet Red Army began to complain. And uh, there is always, when the casualties go up and when the military is not scoring uh, a significant victory or advance in a war, there is always, always the possibility uh, of a military coup or a coup of some sort within the intelligence forces uh, from within the Kremlin. Uh, and I think uh, Putin is very cognizant of this. It is not so much, um, you know, the question of just the military. It's what that military is doing and how well it's performing and how the blowback might impact uh, his own uh, dictatorship and his own control over uh, the bureaucracy and the military and especially the intelligence forces. Well, now, what is it, if, if I may ask this, but Helena, also, by the way, is also waiting for to, to visit with you, gentlemen. What is it uh, about what Ukraine is doing um, that is causing such a problem for Russia? Because as, as they've mentioned, uh, Russia has superior uh, manpower, superior money, yeah, basically, and, and, the, and basically the will with their leader to continue this war. What does Ukraine have, aside from the United States? Well, um, foreign is, is morale. They're fighting for their, their own country. Okay. And right. uh, the Russian forces are less well-trained than we had thought, uh, less well-equipped than we had thought, which kind of puts, puts me back in mind of the Cold War when we thought, you know, what, what a monolithic power the Soviet Union was. And it turned out it was crumbling from the inside. Um, but also, Ukraine's had enormous uh, assistance from the West. Uh, they have NATO and American weaponry, and that, that is, that's made a big difference as well. All right, let's get Helena on the line. Uh, Helena, thank you for holding. You're on with our guests. Go ahead, please. Yeah, thank you for taking my call. I, I had a question about one of the other um, global hotspots uh, right now these days, and that's the protest. Um, in Iran, I, I think, I suspect these have gone on and actually gained strength in a way that maybe no one really expected. And I wanted to ask your guests um, for kind of an update on those. I understand there was a joint statement by the Iranian opposition abroad um, about their unity uh, recently with the new year. And I wondered if your guests could comment on that. Thank you. Yeah, so that's, Thank you, that's a great question. Um, uh, it is now over 100 days that the protests uh, have uh, erupted in Iran, and they have an ebb and flow. You know, they, they went up and became very intense. Then they went down, you know, and they, you know, people were saying that they have lost their momentum. Um, in the last 48 hours, from what I hear, uh, the, the protesters are back on the streets. Uh, there have been major clashes, uh, especially in the last two days. Um, so this seems to be the trend that uh, regardless of the ebb and flow, it will continue. 
because in reality inside Iran, nobody believes that we can go back to the status quo as it was a uh, hundred days ago, and that the regime will somehow consolidate its power and people will just go back to their homes and remain silent and submissive. Um, on uh, the dot at uh, 12 midnight as the new year was arriving, uh, you are absolutely correct. There was an announcement of uh, unity among several uh, very prominent members of the Iranian opposition. Uh, these included uh, uh, democracy activists, uh, even a soccer player, a journalist, a very prominent journalist, a human rights activist, as well as uh, the son of the last Shah of Iran, Prince Reza Pahlavi, uh, who issued a, a, a joint statement, uh, uh, which was for the first time an indication of the Iranian opposition coming together and expressing their opinion in joint statements rather than uh, in sort of fragmented and uh, uh, disunified fashion. Well, we, uh, we, we will continue with Global Hotspots. We'll come right back. Emmett is waiting to visit with you, gentlemen. Dr. Michael Mayer here in the studio. Dr. Mirdad Kia joining us from his office at the University of Montana. We'll be back with more of Global Hotspots right after this. Victor deployed for the first time to Afghanistan in 2003. At four in the morning, my phone rang. They said, I regret to inform you that your husband was wounded in action. Victor sustained a moderate traumatic brain injury. I was doing school full-time, and I was also then caring for Victor. One of the most important elements of caregiving is taking care of yourself. I just didn't want to forget that I also had goals and that I also had a life. What I did is I challenged Victor to meet me halfway. There are almost six million military and veteran caregivers across the nation. We have our own journey, and we can fulfill that journey at the same time that we are helping our loved one. Visit aarp.org caregiving for a free military veteran's guide to navigate your caregiving journey and better care for your loved one and yourself. Brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. Lorraine knew she wanted to adopt a teenager from foster care. I love teenagers. I think it adds an element of fun because you can really do activities as a family that everybody loves. The Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption believes you're never too old for family. More than 20,000 children in the U.S. are at risk of aging out of foster care without a family. Learn how you can help at DaveThomasFoundation.org. Hey, welcome back to Talk Back Global Hotspots uh, going on right now with uh, Dr. Michael Mayer here in the studio. Dr. Mirdad Kia joining us on the phone. And uh, Emmett is on the line right now. Emmett, thank you for holding. You're on with our guests for Global Hotspots. Go ahead. Yeah, thanks for taking my call. Well, I was just thinking this morning. I know I got up a little early, but, you know, I was, one of the biggest mistakes we ever made was to encourage Ukraine to give up its nuclear weapons. We said we would defend them. We're helping them, you know, with regular armor and tanks and whatever weaponry we have, but they should never have been encouraged to give up their nuclear weapons. That was a big deterrent. Now, that being said, 
what if we decided to give back Ukraine its nuclear weapons as part of an arms package? Now, I know Russia would be very angry. It could set off World War III, but I am so tired of a... I don't know how to explain it, but, you know, I think it would be a deterrent. Do you think it would be a deterrent to Putin, or would just that just set off World War III, thermonuclear explosion, etc.? Because we've got to stand up to the Russians more forcefully than what we're doing, so... That's my question for today. All right. Thank you, Emmett. Uh, gentlemen, go much. ahead. Well, it's hard to know exactly what would happen. It would certainly be provocative, and um, it might encourage Putin to use nuclear weapons. If things turn bad for Ukraine, they might be encouraged to use nuclear weapons. And I, I don't think anybody really wants to see that, because if you don't like what's going on there now, you really wouldn't like World War Three. I think despite Ukraine's... Um victories against the Russian army, we have to be very cognizant of the fact that, you know, pushing uh, the line to a point that Putin uh, can justify uh, moving in the direction of using nukes, I think, I think is quite dangerous. And uh, uh, I, I think at this point, he's on the defensive uh, he is caught in a corner, and uh, he knows that uh, his casualties are really, really embarrassing. And in fact, in terms of numbers, astronomical. So uh, we do not want to provide him with a justification to lash out and lash out in the kind of fashion that uh, might actually erupt into a much larger war. And I think the European uh, states, members of the NATO, are very sensitive to that issue. And uh, in this case, I have to say, United States uh, cannot make just decisions on its own. Uh, it has to bring uh, a consensus to all its allies in the NATO. And that is the kind of tough uh, process of decision-making that we are dealing with here. I'm, I'm going to ask a, a, a very pedestrian question here, and, and that is, uh, they gave up their nuclear weapons to whom? And uh, and if they wanted them back, how would they get them back? What would be the mechanism? Well, it's not like they're in a warehouse yeah. someplace. And, <laughs> I was you know, going to say. Yeah. You just take them out and, and put, and put right, them up right, there. Right, yeah. uh, not like the infant formula. It still isn't on the shelves. Um, it, it, they were they were mostly disassembled under okay. under international supervision, uh, right. pri primarily the United States. And I think one thing that that really supports what Meredith was saying is that Russian nuclear doc uh, Russian military doctrine calls for uh, at least in theory a larger reliance on tactical nuclear weapons, and uh, something that might provoke that. And then. Uh, as as uh, Kissinger once pointed out, that you know it, it's very easy to escalate. Once you start, it, it's, it's almost impossible to stop the escalation process. So that the use of tactical nuclear weapons would lead to quite likely strategic nuclear weapons, which is exactly what everybody is trying to avoid. One hopes. And uh, by the way, Ukraine is not the only country in the former Soviet Union. Uh, for example, Kazakhstan in Central Asia. Uh, also uh, had nuclear capabilities and uh, with the help from United States and uh, the International Atomic Agency and other international organizations, they had their nukes also dismantled. So in some ways, that was a process of uh, post-Soviet Union 
uh, sort of all the former Soviet republics which had that capability, including Ukraine, voluntarily agreed uh, to, to, to get rid of their nuclear capabilities. And I think at that point it made a lot of sense. To me, it still makes sense. And I think the situation should be political and economic isolation uh, of Putin, plus uh, encouraging and supporting Ukraine in any form possible, in any form and shape possible, to actually continue with winning the war against the Russians, and that would be sufficient. Uh, in the less than a minute we have left, what would uh, what would it take to declare a victory over Russia? Well, um, Zelensky has said that every last Russian soldier off of every foot of Ukrainian territory, and right. that would mean not only the areas in eastern Ukraine, but presumably Crimea as well. And um, Putin's not not going to do that without um, without a considerable. Uh, resistance, and so it, it, at this point, it's, it's really hard. It's really hard to tell. Um, I, I think getting back most of eastern Ukraine, uh, a lot of people would regard as, uh, or at least almost all of eastern Ukraine, as 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 a victory, and then and then from there, I guess you have to see. We're going to come right back with more of global hotspots after the top of the hour. Another hour awaits. We'd love to hear from you at seven two one twelve ninety. We'll be back. This is Talkback, 721-1290 or 1-800-568-5309. This is News Talk KGVO, AM 1290 and 98.3 FM. KGVO, Missoula's news and weather station. Welcome back. It's hour number two of Talkback. It's Global Hotspots this morning. Joining us here in the studio is Dr. Michael Mayer. Also on the phone is Dr. Mirdad Kia. Talk back brought to you this morning by Phillips Janitorial, where they offer residential and commercial cleaning, and no job is too big or small for this brand new year. Call 260-6617. Brooklyn Bagel and Bakery, proud to sponsor Talkback this morning, where you'll find authentic New York bagels and pastries all the way from Little Italy, located out on North Reserve. The views and opinions expressed on TalkBack are not those of the staff, management, or advertisers. Okay, we're back on TalkBack. Dr. Michael Mayer here in the studio. Dr. Mirdad Kia joining us on the phone right now. And gentlemen, uh, the phone lines are beginning to, to fill up a little bit. So let's uh, get right to our first caller, which I believe is Joe. Joe, good morning. You're on. Yeah, I was just wondering if, if you guys could talk a little about the history of Georgia and when Russia went in there and what happened. I believe that was in the 70s, wasn't it? And uh, and then in addition, I'm curious of what happened to this uh, guy from Missoula that went to Poland. He's with the boxing club. Peter, you know about him. Uh, to work with the uh, aid. Um, just curious if there's any updates on what he's up to. But I have uh, not received. Georgia. I have not received any word on that. But thank you for bringing it up. We'll see what we can find out. In, in, yeah. So yeah. that's a great question. Um, as uh, <clears throat> some of our listeners know, uh, there is another Georgia aside our own Georgia, the state of Georgia. That's the Republic of Georgia in the area which is called the Southern Caucasus uh, in the former Soviet Union. Georgia has a very long, in fact, an ancient history of being an independent state and at one point even an independent empire. Uh, it was... Um, <clears throat> invaded and occupied uh, by the Ottoman Turks and the Iranians uh, for several centuries. 
before it fell into the hands of the Russian Empire in the beginning of the 19th century. Uh, since the beginning of the 19th century, <clears throat> uh, it was a province of the Russian Empire. Uh, during the Bolshevik Revolution and the collapse of the uh, Tsarist Empire, um, Georgia declared its independence and, in fact, had an independent government for several years. Uh, at the time, under the so-called Mensheviks, uh, these were the more moderate, quote-unquote, social democrats who declared the independence of Georgia. But then the Red Army uh, invaded Georgia and once again brought it under Soviet rule. Uh, when the Soviet Union collapsed, in fact, before the Soviet Union collapsed, <clears throat> in 1990-1991, Georgia once again uh, declared its independence, and since then it has been an independent state. And, of course, um, what is interesting about Georgia, Georgia, has, um, though it is not properly in Europe and it's on the eastern coast of the Black Sea and just north of Turkey and Iran, uh, it has applied for membership both in the European Union and in the NATO. Uh, the president of Georgia at the time, uh, President Saakashvili, uh, was a big, big advocate of a close alliance with the United States. He had spent some time uh, in the United States at Columbia University. And uh, from the meetings I had, uh, because I've spent some time in Georgia myself, uh, all members of his government were below 40 years old, and most of them were educated in the United States, uh, which was very interesting. And uh, it, it does not therefore surprise our listeners to hear that uh, it had a very pro-American sort of population. President George W. Bush visited Georgia with great enthusiasm from the population. But all of this uh, brought the wrath of Putin upon Georgia, and uh, uh, the result was that uh, between, uh, if I'm not mistaken, August 1st and August 16th, uh, about 16 days, in 2008, uh, Russia invaded Georgia. And one of the things they used, you know, there was an autonomous region in Georgia, which is called South Ossetia, uh, that was used as an excuse for <clears throat> Putin to invade Georgia. And at the time, uh, U.S. Special Forces were training the Georgian army, and this had uh, aroused the wrath and the fury of Putin. And, of course, <clears throat> Georgia... Uh, was forced to accept defeat. However, uh, with pressure from European uh, allies of United States and United States, uh, Putin did not proceed to the city of Tbilisi, the capital of Georgia. So Georgia has maintained its independence, however, under the knife of uh, and threat of Russian military intervention. Yeah, I think, no, go ahead. I think that, that one of the important things about that is it happened in 2008 when George Bush's popularity had plummeted to a low and the, the, the wars in the Middle East were unpopular. And also, um, 
there was an election coming up, and so there, uh, I think Putin sensed weakness on the part of America, and that also contributed to his decision. All right, we're going to come right back with more of Talk Back. We have, I believe, uh, Catherine waiting on the line. Catherine, if you'll hang on just a minute, we'll be back right after this quick timeout. Okay, we're back on Talk Back. It's Global Hotspots, and uh, Mirdad Kia joining us on the phone. Dr. Mirdad Kia, also here in the studio, is uh, Dr. Michael Mayer. And uh, all right, let's continue. I believe we have Catherine waiting. Uh, Catherine, good morning. You're on. Thank you for holding. Yeah, good morning. Um, there have been uh, several unexplained explosions of pipelines and, and other fires of strategic facilities in Russia uh, in the recent months. And the allegation is that the CIA and other NATO allies are conducting covert sabotage operations inside Russia. Do you think this is, all, this is true? If so, what do you think the outcome would be for the United States, given the recent statements by prominent officials in Russia about targeting U.S. cities? with nuclear weapons? Wow. It's a good question. Um, I, uh, obviously, I, we, don't have, we don't have any particular insight to that um, in terms of concrete knowledge. Uh, I guess CIA or NATO is, is, a, is a possibility. Ukrainian, uh, in, uh, either rocketry or um, on-the-ground operations are also a possibility. And um, I guess one day we'll find out. Yeah, and uh, there is also um, the idea that this might be a joint operation um, between uh, United States and Ukraine. Um, but um, this is uh, some of these explosions uh, took place during repairs on a section of the Europe-bound natural gas pipeline. In Western Russia, it has killed three people in one case, and uh, and uh, uh, this uh, pipeline uh, is uh, very important as far as the export of uh, uh, Russian uh, oil and gas to uh, to European markets. And um, uh, this the pipeline that I think Catherine is talking about originates at a gas field in Siberia and crosses Ukraine along its way to Europe. Uh, and it's one of the main routes of Russian gas exports uh, to EU. So uh, this is, this is, this is uh, a very important event and a very important uh, situation. Um, I'm sure if uh, Russians were aware of American involvement, they would not say anything, at least at this point, because it would prove uh, uh, to be embarrassing uh, for the Russian intelligence to have failed to actually capture the uh, the responsible parties. I think I think Marin is absolutely right about that. I mean, just go back to the U-2 overflights of the Soviet Union until they actually shot down Gary Powers' plane. Uh, the Soviets never said anything about it because they didn't want to admit that the United States could fly over their territory with impunity and they couldn't do anything about it. Let's continue on. Uh, I believe we have uh, Colonel Tim Gardaby on the line. Colonel Tim, good morning, sir. Yes, good morning. Yes, uh, carrying on with the conversation on uh, global hotspots and uh, Ukraine, uh, the other night, I listened to a uh, documentary filmmaker uh, who was just there for, just in Ukraine for a month. Uh, his name is Robert Young Pelton. And uh, just some notes from 
what he talked about the other night is that uh, he says he's estimating that uh, 50% of the Russian military capacity has been worn down, which uh, is believable since they're instituting a draft. And also, uh, I'll read the notes here. Putin's attack on Ukraine was part of his vow to rebuild Russia. And he gambled on the notion that America would not respond as it had recently pulled troops from Afghanistan and other locations around the world. Now the conflict is a kind of World War III. Uh, Pelton continued, he does not believe that Putin has a terminal or serious illness, as some have reported, but it is extraordinary how many elite or senior Russians that disagreed with Putin have died suddenly. In the last year, many of Putin's associates seem to have this magical attraction to jumping out of windows. <laughs> and uh, he marked about the suspicious death. As long as Putin is in power, he foresees continuing the attacks, nibbling away militarily, and using political weapons and propaganda for his cause. It is not out of the question that he might use some kind of nuclear, or, excuse me, tactical nukes. And uh, that's from the other night. I thought that was very interesting to add to the conversation. Yeah. Colonel Tim, thanks for the call, sir. Gentlemen, uh, your, your comments. So, I mean, I, I'd like Mike to, of course, uh, take this even further. But uh, we know that this uh, trend of uh, oligarchs and businessmen uh, dying has been a, has been a reality of Russian life, um, if I'm not mistaken, and this number might be inaccurate, so I apologize in advance, but we have already uh, 38 Russian businessmen and oligarchs close to uh, Putin uh, who died in a mysterious or suspicious circumstances between 2014 and 2017. Uh, that's a large number of individuals, 38. I, I would imagine their insurance rates are going sky high. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, that trend uh, has continued. Um, so, um, um, and then uh, if, you, if you read some of the European uh, publications, uh, for example, uh, June 3rd, uh, 2022, I believe it was, uh, a, a Dutch uh, news network apparently described the phenomenon as a grim series of Russian billionaires, many from the oil and gas industries who have been found dead under unusual circumstances. Uh, and, uh, uh, for example, uh, on January, uh, in, uh, in previous January, there was the 60-year-old Leonid Schulman uh, um, who was the, I think if I'm not mistaken, transport chief for Russian energy giant Gazprom. He was found dead in the bathroom of his country house. And these are very interesting. You know, the places they are found dead is actually uh, 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 fascinating and disturbing. Uh, but some of them, including Mr. Schulman, they also they have found these suicide notes next to the body. Uh, which is which is um, uh, 
disturbing and uh, and and uh, and uh, pretty gruesome at the same time. Whatever the case may be, apparently uh, close affinity with uh, Putin is far from guaranteeing a long life. In fact, it might shorten your life significantly. There's also been uh, various reports of disappearances of Denzel Washington and uh, in uh, and what is it called, the Equalizer Three. Uh, because he's already been to Russia, so yeah, well, yeah, people around Stalin had a way of vanishing yeah, too. In yeah, fact, somebody yeah. wrote a book some years ago called "The Commissar Vanishes" because they used to airbrush them out of the photographs <laughs> of the the Soviets up on the Presidium, um, and and you know so so much of this is KGB. And when George W. Bush looked into Putin's eyes and said, you know, he looked into his eyes and saw something. What he saw was three initials KGB, and even even the use of of the window uh, go, going all the way back to the earliest days of the Cold War, you know, Maserat and Benish, and you know, getting thrown out of windows by the KGB uh, it, or, or, or NKVD as it was in those days um, uh, is um, uh, it, 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 it's a long tradition. We're going to come right back. Seven two one twelve ninety is our number. One eight hundred five six eight five three zero nine. We're we're in, right in the middle of global hotspots, and if you have a question or comment, maybe a new uh, a global hotspot we haven't mentioned yet. If you'd like to bring that up, we'd be happy to talk about that. Seven two one twelve ninety. Back with more in a moment. When it comes to making plans, you are the best. What about those round trips that you plan in advance, which are perfect on your way there and perfect on your way back? Or those meetings with friends for which you make a group chat three months before so that nobody or anything is missing? Or your daughter's first birthday party? You planned it with such dedication that instead of the first, it felt like our quince's. The same way you plan each detail for those moments. Start planning to protect you and your loved ones from a natural disaster. Sign up for local weather and emergency alerts. Prepare an emergency kit and make a family communications plan. Protecting your family is the best plan you can make. Get started at ready.gov plan. Brought to you by FEMA and the Ad Council. Some of the best sounds you'll ever hear are generic. Safe. Effective. Even money-saving. Just like FDA-approved generic drugs. Even if they don't come in the exact same color or shape as their brand name equivalents, they have the same key ingredients and go through a rigorous review process. Talk to your doctor or pharmacist today and visit FDA.gov slash generic drugs. Generics are safe, effective, and can save you money. You'll like the sound of that. Okay, we are back on Talkback Global Hotspots uh, in lieu of phone calls. Uh, I was visiting with uh, Dr. Kia and Dr. Mayer here in the studio uh, about what has been happening in Iran recently with the, the amount of women who have gone to the streets to protest um, the, the treatment that women receive there. And that there have been, I have heard uh, rumors uh, or reports that there are actual rape squads that have been sent out to try to quell the disturbances with women. So I, I wanted to find out if, if that is uh, true or not. So, Dr. Kia. Absolutely correct. And uh, you have to, as, as I mentioned to you during the break, uh, you have to remember uh, that Iran's security forces and the entire Iranian intelligence network uh, has been trained or has received 
training for particular tasks and objectives by Russia, China, and North Korea. Uh, that's what we started this program with, uh, uh, Peter, that this uh, block, you know, this new Cold War and creating of a block is not some, uh, some you know, imaginary, fictional, you know, reality. It is real. And uh, what did the Chinese, what did the Russians, what did the North Koreans uh, teach the Iranians, uh, who already know a great deal themselves, was basically uh, to use even more heinous criminal behavior in uh, suppressing their own population. Uh, I don't think many of your listeners know that in the last 100 days in Iran, the government has imprisoned more than 20,000 individuals. Iran has now a population of prisoners just in the last three months or so that has increased by over 20,000. And we have uh, cells, jail cells, uh, you know, very small, probably as small as your studio, uh, that contain something like 20 people per uh, jail. And uh, people are sleeping standing up, basically, uh, or on top of each other. And one of the targets is to intimidate the young people who have come to the streets, but especially women. And, of course, uh, uh, sexual assault, rape, and um, attacks against women has been one of the hallmarks of this criminal regime uh, in Iran. One of the most striking things that I've seen, there, there have been images on, uh, some of the Meredith have sent me on, uh, on you know, links, but also on ITV of uh, the, the violence, the escalating violence the regime is using against people. And just watching the, uh, the security forces fan out and, um, and, and attack crowds of, of protesters is, is really horrific stuff. And it's curious that it's not getting more play in the West, because I think if it did, the outrage would be greater. And one of the hallmarks of this, Peter, is that uh, they now are under order to only shoot at the heads and the eyes. And they have these bullets, these rubber bullets. And um, on many occasions, they have fired these uh, rubber bullets at uh, the, prost- the protesters' faces and especially eyes. So we have a large number of Iranian protesters who have lost their eyesight as a result. Uh, This is uh, the way uh, they want to frighten uh, younger people from coming to the streets. And of course, it is not bearing fruit. And in fact, it only ignites the fury and the rage of the people. And if there was any legitimacy among more religious uh, sectors of the society, that has long disappeared now. We're up against a break. 721-1290 is our number. We have all of our phone lines open. Uh, we'd love to have you uh, get in touch with us. We'll be right back with more of Talk Back right after this. How is your drive to school? Let me tell you. I had to get my iced coffee first. I just can't seem to put it down. My favorite rapper just announced a tour. My phone was buzzing like crazy. I'm so excited. I had to text all my friends right then to talk about it. Then someone started calling me and... Let's try that again. I turned my phone off right away. I never drive distracted. Visit StopTextStopRex.org. A message brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, Project Yellow Light, and the Ad Council.
And we are back on TalkBack, 721-1290 is our number. It's Global Hotspots right now. Here in the studio, we have Dr. Michael Mayer on the phone with us. So we have uh, Dr. Mirdad Kia, and the phone lines are beginning to fill up a little bit. So let us continue. I believe Eric has been waiting the longest. Eric, good morning. Thank you for holding. Yeah, there's a, a Bible passage uh, where it, it says that David has killed his thousands or, his, or Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his tens of thousands. And uh, I find it interesting that uh, the finger pointing. Um, James Madison said that, uh, that the downfall of this country will come in the auspices of, a, of a, uh, an external enemy. And what, what is happening here is that we're the finger pointing about how bad these people are. Well, those people are novices compared to the U.S. Uh, the U.S. has murdered 60 million babies or more through physical abortion and almost close to a billion babies by chemical abortion. A billion. Get that number in your head. And then you speak of George Bush and you look at his illegal wars in the Middle East and the millions of people that we've killed over there with our drone strikes and... These other countries that you guys are pointing fingers at are novices compared to the U.S. Anyway, there's my comment. All right. Thanks for the call. I uh, appreciate that. So, gentlemen, your response. Um, I, th- I think the, the figure for drone strikes is a little high. Um, and uh, it, I mean, I, I, I'm not sure exactly. I, I understand the, the idea that, you know, the people in glass houses shouldn't be throwing stones. I'm just not sure the American house is as glass as Eric has, uh, has suggested. Beard that. Yeah, that, I think that says it all. All right, let's, uh, let's continue on. I believe we have Helena. She's back. Helena, thank you for holding. Go ahead, please. Thank you very much. I, I wanted to ask about something I don't believe we've touched on yet, and that's the, um, the protests in China um, in regards to when they were experiencing the COVID surge and they put these confinement requirements on the population and the population responded with these protests against the COVID restrictions. Um, I wonder if your guest could comment on what's going on over there in regards to that. We were discussing that. We were discussing that off off mic, and I'm really glad you brought that up because it is okay. it, it it is ab- absolutely shocking video that came out of China mm-hmm. with the, these primarily uh, teen and early twenty uh, twenty year olds in China being. Uh, literally herded by uh, uh, by a, a group of guards or, or soldiers or whatever, all dressed in white with the, the plastic shields from, from curb to curb, just pushing them, pushing them, pushing them into detention areas. Yeah, Mike, go ahead, please. Yeah, well, and I, I think one of the, again, we do have those images, again, thanks to cell phones and so on. Right. But it's, it's very hard to, to know what exactly is going on in China. It's one of the most... Um, opaque or, or closed societies to, to outsiders. I guess North Korea maybe would be, would be a more extreme example. But um, I, I think that one of the most interesting things about this is that the, the West, and, and particularly many in the United States, made a, 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 a pretty serious miscalculation by banking on liberalization in China. They thought that you know, sort of economic reforms would lead to political reforms, um, which to a certain extent happened in, in the Soviet Union. But um, 
I, I, one of the reasons I think people were able to maintain those illusions was because people don't can't look in. But China really doesn't have a market economy. It has uh, very much a planned economy. It still has five-year plans, like the old Soviet Union. And um, uh, I think there are two things going on here. One is the restrictions under COVID, which were so extreme. And now they're, they seem to be returning to that and using force to, to implement them. Um, but also the, the economic reality that um, uh, China's leaders seem to focus on one figure of economics, which is growth. And that, that it is certainly good to have growth. Uh, but they, they don't look at a number of other, uh, other statistics and uh, indicators of, of, of economic progress. And I, I think that the Chinese economy, is, although it's getting larger and it's, it's increasingly powerful and able to use that both in terms of soft power and build up their military, um, uh, th- there's, there's a structural weakness there as well. And I think you're, some of that is what you're seeing in the streets. Yeah, so I think uh, you know, Mike is right on the point here. Um, I think that uh, these policy of lockdowns uh, has had a very adverse impact on China. Uh, it is the, the world's second largest economy, and it did set off uh, mass public protests. But I think in some ways, uh, Xi Jinping, the leader of China, China's top leader, as he's now referred to, um, he basically um, stacked on the legitimacy of this zero-COVID making it almost like an ideological campaign. And I think the purpose of the campaign was to demonstrate the superiority of centralized control over uh, democratic systems, democratic rule. And uh, he actually declared the people's war against coronavirus uh, that used lockdowns and quarantines to eliminate infections. And it has backfired big time. Uh, But the purpose was not just to show and demonstrate his power, but also to sort of show the rest of the world, perhaps, uh, that the Chinese command economy, uh, you know, one-party system is far more efficient uh, than European and American systems. And, uh, of course, uh, uh, these protests clearly showed uh, that these policies have been an abysmal failure at best. I wanted to ask both of you gentlemen specifically about China. Um, there's a billion people there. Uh, conservatively speaking, there could be more than that. Um, so what, what would keep the masses from rising up? I mean, the Communist Party is big, but is it really that big? I mean, it, it, does it have so much power that the sheer weight, the number of human beings that wanted to just or, or is it just too difficult to organize there? Well, I, part of this is the nature of, of a totalitarian system. And they not only have a monopoly on power, um, but they have a monopoly... On uh, food. On, yeah, on food and <laughs> yeah, information right. and a lot of other things. Right. And, I, I, you know, I've, I've often said, if you really want to get a sense of just what a totalitarian society means, um, two, two movies come to mind. One is The Lives of Others, a German movie about life in, the, um, in East Germany, which is, uh, I mean, it just gives you a sense of the claustrophobia and the fear of opening your mouth. 
um, that, that that kind of system imposed. The other, which, which is a comic view of it, is the death of Stalin. But it gives you a sense of just the, the constant terror, the constant raiding. Uh, the, the, every time someone opens his mouth, you want to get us killed, is the response. And it's kind of a joke in the death of Stalin, but it wasn't very funny in real life. The HBO miniseries about Chernobyl uh, was a lot of that revolved around the secrecy or the attempted secrecy. How, 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 do, you, how do you cover up a nuclear uh, uh, plant blowing up and causing a, a massive cloud going all but but they did the best they could to keep that and so oh it's uh, nothing it's just local we're fine and of course we're still feeling the effects of that now yeah the population peter is actually 1.4 billion uh so uh the, the chinese population has exceeded 1 billion uh some time ago and uh, it is growing, though the growth has been slowed down. And uh, there, there are also issues uh, with this growth uh, because there was a tendency um, for um, some families to prefer male, uh, you know, uh, boys, basically, uh, male offspring. Um, you know, the whole issue of balance among genders in the population is also a worrisome factor uh, in Chinese society and for the Chinese government. But I think one of the issues that the Chinese government has always argued is that how can you feed 1.4 billion people? Uh, how can you find jobs for 1.4 billion people? How can you maintain security for 1.4 billion people? What you have to have a very strong state government. And of course, in this argument, uh, the Chinese Communist Party has always used the central point in the argument is that when Chinese state uh, was weakened uh, in the 18th and 19th century, uh, Western colonial powers came and took uh, pieces of China for themselves, uh, Hong Kong being the best example, uh, by the British, and therefore we need a strong state army intelligence force not to only provide basic services for the population, but also to maintain the independence and territorial integrity of the Chinese state. And with that, we're up against another break. Seven two one twelve ninety. that's our number. It's Global Hotspots, and we will be back. Well, I believe we have Joe back on. Uh, Joe, back on with us. We'll be back with that. Uh, more with Dr. Mayer and uh, Dr. Kia right after this. And we are back on Talk Back. It's Global Hotspots, but a great program so far. Rapidly coming to a close, only about 10, 10 or 12 minutes left. But uh, the phone lines are beginning to light up now. Dr. Mirdad Kia joining us on the phone. Dr. Michael Mayer here in the studio. And I believe that um, Mr. Wingnut is, uh, is next. Uh, Mr. Nutt, go ahead. Oh, good morning. As, as far as the uh, folks rising up in China, you know, I, I think sometimes we overlook the power of education and indoctrination in the forming how people think. And I've conversed with Chinese people, people formerly from China, who have such a, it takes your breath away how they can look at a historical event and come, uh, come away with a diametrically opposed opinion on what actually occurred there through their education system. Uh, so 
Anyway, that's my comment this morning. All right, thanks for the call. Gentlemen, your your response I, to that. I, th- I think that's a great comment. Um, my own perception, and this is very interesting because um, perhaps a lot of people don't realize that the educational system in China and the indoctrination that goes with it uh, portrays China not as um, a rising power, which it does, uh, but it also has a very interesting take uh, by actually turning China in some way to a third world country, uh, which has gone through a very atrocious uh, and humiliating colonial history, that it has this um, sort of history of being humiliated, occupied, and and uh, and um, uh, very embarrassing treaties being imposed on China, uh, especially in the 19th century, as I mentioned. So in some ways, though it is now a superpower and the second largest economy, uh, you still have a very, very strong residue of uh, uh, Chinese thinking at times, uh, like a third world country, uh, which has been uh, which has been insulted and humiliated by Western power, uh, Western powers when it was weak, and that line is used over and over to justify. Uh, China's military buildup, uh, China's perhaps more uh, aggressive and uh, expansionist policies uh, towards some of its neighbors, and so on and so forth. And also, uh, let's not forget China's expansionist policies within China uh, against the Uyghur or Uyghur uh, Muslim minority or against uh, the Tibetan Buddhists that these are uh, the complaint about human rights violations by Western countries uh, with regard to the Muslim population or the Tibetan Buddhist population are just the means to cause embarrassment for China by Western powers, and there's no reality or foundation to them. And I think you see two different... um kinds of reactions or responses among educated people to this indoctrination system. One is I've had graduate students from China and other universities who simply cannot deal with the idea that there are different ways of looking at things historically. Historians may have different interpretations or analyses. Um, The other is is self-censorship. I had a graduate student many years ago here at UM who would turn in drafts of a thesis with all kinds of interesting information, or he'd talk about interesting stuff he'd dug up, and the drafts wouldn't have that. And I'd say, where's all that stuff you're talking about? And he'd say, if I put that in, I can't go home. Wow. All right, let's get another call in before we have to take uh, our last break. Sally, thank you for holding your own talk back with our guests. Go ahead, please. So good to have you back. I didn't have a pen in hand when you listed the two movies that were exemplary of a totalitarian regime, and I kind of might look at them. Sure. One is The Lives of Others, um, uh, an East, a German film about the Stasi surveillance of a couple of, uh, in, in East Germany, uh, the, okay. the Lives of Others, and the other is The Death of Stalin, about the struggle for power that took place after Stalin's death. Okay, thank you. I don't want to keep you because there was a book, I turned it in, I just couldn't handle it being in my house. It was Stalingrad. It was so dark that and I actually shouldn't part with good literature, but it was, you know, that dark. I gave it to the book exchange, so who knows. But thank you for this one. 
Sally, yeah. thanks for the call. And with that, we're up, we're up again. Stalin, uh, yeah, the death of Stalin is actually not only a great movie, but at times it becomes a very humorous it's very uh, funny. Of artwork, yeah. <laughs> it's black humor, but it is very funny. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to come right back. 721-1290 is our number. Our guests uh, on the phone, uh, Dr. Mirdad Kia, Dr. Michael Mayer joining us here in the studio. It's Global Hotspots, and we will continue in one minute. Okay, we're back, and uh, we are uh, right in the middle, actually close, getting close to ending our time together with our guests, Dr. Michael Mayer here in the studio, Dr. Amir Dadkia joining us on the phone. And uh, folks are still waiting to visit, so let's jump right back in. Joe is back with another comment or question. Joe, go ahead. Thank you. Yeah, initially when the COVID virus uh, escaped from China, the, uh, it appeared to me and many others that the, the Chinese were culpable in allowing that to happen because they shut down travel within their own country, but they allowed international travel. Now, once again, uh, Biden said on January 6th, he's gonna shut down travel um, from China without a proper test results. So uh, it just seems to me it's more of the same again. And uh, it, because they are such a close society, how can we trust their testing, whether it's accurate or not? And Anyway, do you do you believe or agree that uh, China was culpable the first time around? Number one, and secondly, do you think this could be another round of the same? Okay, yeah, thank you for your call. So, who wants to jump in first? Uh, Mike, please. Yeah, well, I, a couple of things. I think that um, obviously you can't trust uh, China, and I think they do bear a lot of responsibility for the spread of of COVID. Um, uh, if people remember when the Trump administration put on travel bans, people said it was racist. I haven't heard that this time around, but um, I think it's it's probably a, ca a, a cautionary move in e in in either instance. Um, yet it it doesn't seem that putting travel bans on really is able to restrict the spread of the virus. I think the only uh, cheering news that I've heard about all of this is that the, the strains that seem to be prevalent in China today are similar to the strains that are prevalent in the rest of the world, and so therefore the vaccines, to the extent that they're effective, will, will be effective against them as well. Yeah, it seems that uh, the Chinese government had some capability, at least, uh, if not complete responsibility. But this is why I think the, the Congress needs to investigate this. And setting aside all this uh, ideological and especially business concerns and get down to the bottom of this uh, whole situation. Uh, I think there are a lot of folks in this country, because they have made billions in China, that they are worried about the implications of an investigation and the Chinese government's retaliation or negative reaction to it. But if you want to uh, discover the truth, we should set aside all this and get into uh, search for the actual um, cause and the real policies of the Chinese Communist Party. All right, let's get right back to the phones. Uh, Dave is back. Dave, thanks for holding. Go ahead, sir. Yeah, first of all, I'd like to say I don't believe uh, Chairman Mao, uh, Hitler, and Stalin were amateurs of eliminating their own people. I think, I think they, you know, at one point Stalin complained about his hand hurting because he was signing so many death warrants. Um, so I, I, I question that, and, and the fact that uh, you know Stalin was so feared, from what I've read, that that when he 
collapsed in his private quarters that his subordinates would not go into the room to check on him because they were afraid he, he'd get up and and write a death warrant on them. So so he was allowed to lay there for for a long time, hours and hours, and and they took him away eventually. But I'm curious if that's a true story. Okay, thanks, Dave. And well, we yeah, could that use is it. a very true story, actually, and um, uh, more documents. Um, and by the way, it's, it's interesting that Dave asked this question because Mike mentioned the death of Stalin, the movie, it actually brings up that very chapter, that very moment, and highlights it uh, in terms of what the impact of uh, Stalin's apparently stroke uh, um, uh, brought uh, in terms of the response from the, uh, from the Soviet Communist Party Politburo. It kind of reminds uh, me of a, of, of a comedy routine. Are you going to check? I'm not going to check him. Do you want to well, check him? It, it goes back him. to the idea. Yeah. Do you want? Do you want to die? You know, yeah. should we go in yeah. there? Well, right. Do you want to die? Um, yeah. and, 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 I, and I think the person who comes out as being a very calm about it all is Beria, uh, a fellow Georgian, just like Stalin, and uh, the person who was running the KGB uh, in the most atrocious and criminal fashion. You know, people were finding bodies that Beria had killed and buried in the walls of buildings. Uh, there's a story about the uh, Tunisians uh, getting a building in uh, Moscow and converting it to their embassy. And uh, when they were fixing the walls, uh, when they opened the walls, there were dead bodies still from Beria's uh, time as the head of the KGB. Whatever the case may be, uh, that is a true story. And part of the death uh, of Stalin was the result of the fear he had created. Nobody dared to get close to the leader and find out what was wrong with him. Also, apparently, uh, there were very good experts and scholars and doctors uh, who could have, who may have been able to treat Stalin, uh, but they were Jewish. And in the, in the last uh, case under Stalin of the Jewish doctors' conspiracy, many of them had been jailed or many of them had been sent to Siberia. With that, gentlemen, we have about two minutes to promote. Uh, talk about the next book club. Yeah, um, the next book is going to be Douglas Kennard's biography of Eisenhower, and it's a short book. Um, it's uh, a, a, a quick overview, but uh, it opens up a discussion of many of the issues that um, that particularly Meredith wanted to raise about Eisenhower's leadership and his leadership style, and uh, perhaps contrasting it to subsequent American leaders. Now, are these are these books obviously available on Amazon? Yeah, or sure. Local bookstores, or, yeah, but yeah. both. I think Kennard's probably available in local bookstores, but certainly on Amazon. Excellent. So there's your assignment. Can you can you uh, please spell his name for? Uh, our listeners. Sure, K-I-N-N-A-R-D. He, he's a journalist. Yeah. Uh, All right, gentlemen, we still have a minute or so left, so you want to wrap up uh, today's... Uh, Go ahead, Merida. Well, well, the world in which, you know, we find ourselves in 2000, uh, uh, 2023 is a world very similar to the previous year, but with many challenges. And um, what we have tried here is to at least address some of them uh, of course, we haven't addressed all of them, and it's impossible to address all of them in uh, 90 minutes, but I hope that it has been of some help. Well, I am hoping that uh, 
people don't get too discouraged when when they no seriously when they hear all these things. That's, that's why it's called global hot spots. I mean, if it was global warm spots or or comfortable spots, it probably wouldn't be very interesting to listen to. But uh, we appreciate both of you gentlemen being with us uh, on a on a very regular basis. We thank you. Thank you. Thank appreciate you. It. All right. So, Nick, what is coming up on tomorrow's fabulous radio program, sir? Uh, tomorrow we'll have our friend and resident CPA, Walt Kiro, And then also for that uh, KGVO Book Club show, that'll be on Monday, the 16th of this month. So, Excellent. Because we did not mention that. So. Excellent. Get out there and have a, a great day. The fog is beginning to lift, uh, so we might have some sunshine today. And we hope that you have a very pleasant day. Please drive safely. Keep the seatbelt buckled. We'll talk to you tomorrow morning. For another exciting edition of Montana Morning, have a good day.